John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Amen. We're going to begin the book of Revelation this morning. If you've got a Bible, you're going to want to be in chapter 1. As I read Revelation chapter 1 this week, I don't know why, but I was reminded of my grandfather. Uh, My grandfather, uh, like I'm sure some of yours, he was a World War II veteran after the war. He became a lawyer and then a judge. He was a very accomplished man. But if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't have necessarily found him to be an impressive man. He was about five foot four or five, typically wore corduroy pants with a plaid shirt tucked into the corduroy pants. By the time I knew him, he had a bald head with a a rim. Uh, He typically wore kind of a little uh, beanie when he walked around. Uh, around town, very soft-spoken. He never, I never heard the man raise his voice. I knew him primarily, of course, as my grandfather. And if you had seen him, you would have thought, there goes just another elderly man. However, I had the privilege a few times during my childhood to go with him to work where he served as a district judge in Oklahoma City. And uh, it was like walking into that courtroom uh, turned my grandfather into an entirely different person. Now, he was the same person. He still never raised his voice. He still never shouted. He still was mild-mannered. But when he walked into that courtroom, instead of being arrayed in corduroy pants, he was arrayed in a black robe from head to toe. And he would ascend these steps up onto this dais where he sat behind his bench and he had law enforcement at his disposal in case anybody got out of line. When he walked in the room, everybody stood up until he told them to sit down. And he had a gavel that he could bang on that bench in case anybody uh, got a little bit too unruly. In fact, one time, as everybody was filing out of the courtroom, uh, he allowed me to come back behind the bench with him, and he let me bang the gavel. And I will never forget the power that coursed through my body when I banged that gavel. And I banged that gavel, and everybody stopped. They were filing out like this, and everybody stopped, and they turned, and they looked back at the bench to see what the judge needed until they realized it was just me. And then they turned back around and left the courtroom. And I always think of that contrast from this mild-mannered man to a man who was surrounded by power and glory and the trappings of the courtroom. He went from somebody you wouldn't have looked at twice on the street to an impressive and powerful figure when he was in that courtroom. I thought of that contrast this week as I read Revelation 1. Because I thought that must have been on some level what the Apostle John was feeling 
when he encountered Jesus Christ, some 60 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Because you have to remember, John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And certainly he saw Jesus as a powerful teacher and as a miracle worker, and he came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And at moments during his life, he saw the glory of Jesus, like at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. But for the most part, the Apostle John knew Jesus as a friend, as an ordinary person. If you had seen Jesus during his first coming in the first century, you might not have looked at him twice. He just looked like an ordinary Jewish man living in an ordinary village. And yet here in Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle, writing around 95 or 96 AD, about 60 years after he has last seen Jesus, he encounters a whole different Jesus. This is Jesus resurrected, Jesus glorified, Jesus shining with the glory of God, surrounded by the angels of heaven and receiving constant praise and honor and glory from them. And so chapter one of the book of Revelation sets the stage for us, that we are about to hear God's plans for the future revealed to the apostle John from the king of all the rulers of the earth, the risen savior. And I, and I, I wanna point this out at the beginning of the book of Revelation for this reason. A lot of times when we read the book of Revelation or we hear about the book of Revelation or we talk about end times, we talk primarily about how the, the book of Revelation is a book about what's going to happen in the future. And that is true. It is a book about what's gonna happen in the future. We're gonna see that right at the beginning of the book. But more than a book about what's going to happen, the book of Revelation is a book about who's in charge. More than a book about what's going to happen, the book of Revelation is about who is in charge. So right at the beginning of the book of Revelation, we're going to see the power and the glory and the control of Jesus over the universe displayed in ways that John had never seen it before. Here's the essence of chapter one of the book of Revelation. The risen Jesus is Lord of everyone, everywhere, forever. The risen Jesus is Lord of everyone, everywhere, forever. And that's going to set the stage for us as we move through the book of Revelation because I want us to understand the book of Revelation is not meant to scare us. It's actually meant to comfort us. It's actually a book written to Christians who were in the midst of a time of turmoil and chaos and uncertainty and fear. And it's a book written to say this, that no matter what is happening today with the government, with your wallet, with your kids, with your health, even if you're facing death, no matter what you are facing today, God has today and tomorrow in his hands. And if you can trust him with eternity, if you can trust him with all of time, then you can trust him with your week. If you can trust him with the future, you can trust him with today. Jesus is fully in control of the universe. And we're gonna see how this plays out in Revelation 1 and throughout the, week, or throughout the book. The risen Jesus is Lord of everyone, everywhere, Forever. I want you just for a moment to ponder the anxieties and the concerns and the fears that you're facing about your life. 
And then when we encounter here in the book of Revelation, we're going to encounter the risen Jesus. Ask yourself, is there anything we're facing right now that this man, son of God, son of man, cannot manage? That's where the book of Revelation is going to take us. The risen Jesus is Lord of everyone, everywhere, forever. I want to begin here in the first eight verses. We're going to see he is Lord of all of history. So follow with me. I'm going to dive into chapter one, verse one of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So John begins and he says, here's the the revelation of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, it is one Revelation, one unveiling of God's plan. So that's why the book, it is revelation, not revelations. It's actually one unveiling of God's plan through Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John the apostle. It's the revelation of Jesus. And John gives us sort of a chain of communication. He says it's the revelation of Jesus. God the Father revealed it to Jesus Jesus then reveals it to his angel. The angel reveals it to John, and John reveals it to us. And the idea here is that that right at the beginning we see God is saying, I want my people to know the things that are going to happen and who's going to be in charge. He sent and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then it goes on and it says, there is a blessing for those who read this book. There's a blessing for those who read this book. This is the only book of the New Testament, by the way, which has this sort of direct and explicit blessing. It says, if you read this, you will receive favor and blessing from God. Now, I don't think that that means that you're going to get a better job or there's going to be more in your bank account or anything like that. Instead, reading this book, I believe the blessing primarily is this. We come to know the peace and the hope and the courage that springs out of knowing God's plan for the future and knowing that he is in control. And right at the beginning of the book, over and over, the book says, I want you to know what's going to happen. The time is near. It's coming soon. And so we read this and we say, God is saying that very soon he's going to bring to completion all of his plans for for you and me, for the world, for the universe, for the church. He's going to bring it all to completion very soon. And the question that always comes up is, what do we mean by soon? What do we mean by near? Because there's no doubt it's been 2,000 years since this book was written. What do we mean by soon? And what we're going to see is that as you move through the book, the idea of soon simply means this. It could come at any moment. It can come at any time. There's no additional events on God's prophetic timeline that need to happen before Jesus kicks off the events of the book of Revelation. Why then has it not happened? Well, in, in the book of Second Peter, Peter tells us, he says, people have always been asking this question, and he says this, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You understand the difference between slowness 
and patience, between procrastination and long-suffering. Slowness is what you and I do on Saturday morning when we know we need to go and mow the lawn. We procrastinate. Slowness is what your children do when you say it's time to work on the homework. They procrastinate. They're slow. God doesn't procrastinate. He's not slow. Instead, he is waiting until the right time because why? It says he wants the the maximum number of people to be able to hear about his plan and to enter into his kingdom. Several years ago, uh, about five years ago, my wife and I went and saw the band U2 in concert. It was the 30-year anniversary of their landmark album, The Joshua Tree. And uh, I bought tickets, and then I'll, I'll acknowledge, I, I saw that the whole thing, the whole event, it started at 9 o'clock p.m. Now, I'll admit, I'll admit, I'm an early-to-bed type of person. My kids make fun of me because usually, like, by 9, I am in my pajamas. I'm ready for bed. I may read, I may talk a little bit, but I'm ready to go to bed. So nine is when I start winding down. Well, so we get there at nine o'clock, and of course, you know it's like 9.20, 9.25 before even the opening band comes on. And then the opening band comes on, and they played for like 30, 35 minutes, and they finished it at 10. And then there was another half an hour before you 2 finally came on where people went to the bathroom, they went in and out, they bought merchandise, and we waited. And I remember thinking, what are we waiting for? Just start the show. Now, why were we waiting? Was the, was the band backstage going, I forgot that we have a show, right? They didn't forget there's 70,000 people in the arena waiting for them to play. They're not procrastinating either. They're not like, I don't really want really to sing tonight. They're not doing that. What are they doing? Well, they know that some people show up late. Some people are gonna go to the bathroom and then not be able to find their seats again. Some people want to buy merchandise. So what are they doing? They're waiting for the arena to be at its maximum capacity because it's a lot more fun to play to a full crowd than a half-empty arena. They're not procrastinating. They're waiting. Peter says, God isn't procrastinating the beginning of the end. Jesus isn't procrastinating. He's waiting. He wants the maximum number of people to come to know him. God is not slow, but he's patient, not wishing for any to come Uh, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So right up front, the book says, here's the things that are going to happen. And here's the God that's going to make them happen. He is Lord of history. And then then John's going to go on and he's going to say, this message is so important. It's so significant that it is endorsed by every member of the triune God, every member of the Trinity. Look, beginning in verse four with me. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he says, I want to send the grace of God and the peace of God to you from these three people. He says, first of all, from him who is and who was and who is to come. We're going to find out in a moment when God the Father speaks from his throne that he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a a riff, so to speak, on Exodus chapter 3. At the burning bush when God appears to Moses and Moses said, who should I tell the Egyptians that you are? And God said, you tell them I am that I am. 
I am the one who always was. I am the one who is. I am the one who always will be. So right up front, John says, it comes to us from the Father who has always been, who always will be. He is on his throne. No matter what happened to you yesterday, no matter what's going to happen to you tomorrow, no matter what your anxieties and trials are, even as Christians, if you face persecution, even if the governmental situation seems uncertain, even if the economy is a mess, God the Father is on his throne. He is, he was, he is to come. I am who I am is sending you this message. And then he goes on and he says, and from the seven spirits that are before the throne. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the reference goes back almost certainly to Zechariah chapter 4. You're going to see a lot of references in the book of Revelation to Zechariah, to Daniel, and to Ezekiel. Those, those books are, and Isaiah. Those books are going to come up a lot. Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Uh, John will quote them. John will refer to them. Here he refers to this, this description of the Spirit in Zechariah 4, where the Holy Spirit is depicted as like a se- uh, seven lamps, seven candles, seven oil lamps that are the spirit of God, and they're they're depicted in Zechariah as the eyes of God that move to and fro throughout the entire earth. The idea is the Holy Spirit sees everything. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. There's nothing that you are experiencing that God doesn't see. There's nowhere that you are walking where his spirit is not present. And so John says, the Father is the Lord of all time and history. The spirit is everywhere, omnipresent and omniscient. And then he says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the one whose words, in other words, are always true, and the firstborn from the dead. Uh, Those of you who are with us in the book of Colossians, you'll recognize this is a quote from Colossians 1.18, where Jesus is described as the firstborn from the dead. And as the firstborn of those who were resurrected from the dead, Jesus, Paul says in Colossians, has come to have first place in everything. He's preeminent. He's truthful so you can trust what the book says. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. John says, here's a message from God about what's about to happen. From the Father who is, who was, who is to come. The Spirit who sees everything and walks among his people. And the Son who can conquer even death and hell because he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. John says, right out of the gate, I want you to understand again. This is a book about who's in charge even more than it is about what's to come. He's gonna tell us what's to come, but he wants us to see who's in charge. And then he goes on talking about Jesus and says to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is a quote, by the way, from Zechariah. Chapter 12, verse 10, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. And then God speaks from his throne, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we start this book with a bang. John says, this is a book about what's gonna happen, given to us by the one who's gonna make it happen. If you're worried about tomorrow, John says, I want you to understand there is nothing that's going to happen to you tomorrow that is out of the control of the ruler of the kings of the earth 
out of control of the Spirit of God, out of control of that, the one, the Father who is and who was and who is to come. He holds everything in his hand, everything. And if God can handle eternity, he can handle Monday morning. He's in control. Most of our anxiety, if we're honest, stems from uncertainty. Most of our fear about the future springs out of things we don't know. Several years ago, I was talking to a friend who had just purchased a new house. And the first time you do that, you know, it it can be pretty nerve-wracking. You sign some papers, unless you just happen to have the cash to pay the house. Most of us sign some papers that we will pay off this house over a period of 15 years or 30 years. And a lot of us, as, as you're signing those papers, it occurs to you, that's a really long time. And I don't know what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 20 years, let alone 30 years. So this guy was like, I'm I'm, I'm in my bed and I'm just, I'm I'm anxious and I can't sleep and I'm freaking out and I'm like, what's going to happen if we can't pay this and and all of this? And he said, my wife kept going, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. And he said, you can't just say it's going to be okay. You don't know that. That's an assertion without facts. Right? But here in, in Revelation 1, when God says, hey, the future for the people of God is bright and secure and perfect and beautiful, it's not an assertion without facts because God gives us right up front the facts behind the assertion that the one who is and who was and who is to come, who has always been seated on his throne, that is the one that's going to make this happen. The Savior who rose from the dead as the firstborn from the dead because he's the firstborn from the dead. If you believe in Jesus, you too will rise from the dead. And so John goes back to facts about Jesus, about the Spirit, about the Father to say he is Lord of history. And then Revelation 1 is gonna set up next for us that he is Lord of the entire universe. Not only Lord of time, but Lord of the universe Today, starting in verse 9, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So here's John, and he begins, he says, hey, I'm like you. I'm a partner in suffering for Jesus. You have to remember, the first century was a rough time to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It was a hard time to be a Christian, especially by the end of the first century, when the Roman government was bearing down on Christians and persecuting them. So here's John, one of the apostles, the last one still alive, and he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is off the western coast of Greece, and he's all, all by himself probably. Maybe there's a few other Christians there. And he says, it's Sunday morning. That's what the Lord's Day means. It's Sunday. I'm in the spirit. I'm worshiping. And he says, all of a sudden, I hear behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, if you've ever been near a trumpet when it has sounded, you know it's loud. I was in the band in high school. I played saxophone. We had to sit in front of the trumpets. The trumpets had a goal to be loud, even if they weren't good. They didn't care. They wanted to be loud. Trumpets are loud. 
Here it's probably a shofar, a horn that is, that is being blown. He says, I hear this loud voice. It's as loud and powerful as a trumpet. And the voice says, I want you to write what you see to these seven churches. We'll talk more about the seven churches next week. But all of a sudden, John in the spirit, he hears this loud voice and he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get back to those in a moment. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So here is John, and he turns around, and there is the most powerful and glorious image of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. He is walking amidst seven golden lampstands. Again, we'll get back to that in a moment. He has a robe. He's he's wearing a robe down to his feet. Now, this might be a robe indicating his priestly status, that Jesus is the high priest who mediates between us and God, or it might simply be a symbol of his dignity and of his authority. He's wearing a golden sash high up on his body. This golden sash worn high was a sign of status and authority and power. He has white hair. This is not because he is uh, old or aging like me. Instead, this is a sign of wisdom and of purity. His hair is white like white wool. He has flaming eyes which indicate insight and the ability to judge, to see what is true and to judge rightly. He has feet that look like bronze. This indicates his purity as well as his strength. And then he's holding these seven stars in his right hand. He has a sword coming from his mouth. What he speaks is true. This is not the same sword, by the way, you see in Hebrews chapter four when it says the Bible is a sword. This is a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth that was a broad sword. It was a killing sword. It was a sword of judgment. This is the Jesus of authority and judgment, and his face is shining with the glory of God. The closest parallel we have in the Bible to a description like this actually comes from the book of Daniel. And I mentioned before, we're gonna see Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah a lot as we walk through the book of Revelation. But, but in Daniel chapter nine, the prophet sees this. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. Now that's God the Father. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. So here in Revelation, John sees a vision very similar, except Jesus is the one with white hair and flames emerging from his eyes. Jesus is fully God with the attributes even of God the Father who is seated on the throne. In Daniel 7, he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the son of man, was given dominion 
glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You have to understand, when John sees Jesus, he almost certainly recognizes this. He sees his friend glorified, and now the ruler of the universe, arrayed in power and honor. And what does John do? He falls at his feet like a dead man in worship. And I love what happens next. John is at his feet recognizing the power of Jesus. And Jesus comes up and it says, he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus comes to his friend and he says, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Now then he offers a description of power that might be inclined to make me more afraid and not less, except for one thing. John is Jesus' friend. And Jesus is John's. And so the one who was, is alive forevermore, was dead and is alive and holds the keys to death in Hades. He says, I want you to know all that's about to happen and all the power of heaven and earth is about to be deployed for the good of God's people, for the salvation of God's people because Jesus died and rose again, we will rise again. Because Jesus holds a kingdom and eternal power. Those who know him have a part in his kingdom. And Jesus is described here also as the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. What do keys represent? Keys are power. You know that, you know that inherently. If you have teenagers who, who have just gotten their license, they will come to you and say, mom, dad, may I have the keys to the car? Now, as long as you hold the keys, you control where they go and when they go there. And so you know, handing over the keys is a handing over of authority and power. And so especially in those early days when they are driving, you're gonna ask questions, hopefully, before you hand over the keys. Where are you going? Will you be careful? Will you remember what you learned in driver's ed? The answer is almost invariably no, but still, you will ask because you have the authority. Right, I, I brought up here this morning, this is actually my keychain that I carry around. And uh, I admit, there's a lot of keys on this keychain. And sometimes people go, what, what do all these keys do? Why do you need so many keys? And I'm gonna be honest with you, I know what about 90% of these keys do. I don't know what all of them do. And the reason is because certainly if there's a key that I don't know what it does, or I'm sorry, a key that I know I don't need anymore, I, I get rid of it. The problem is there are keys that I've acquired that I, I don't remember anymore what doors they open and I'm afraid to dispose of them lest one day I find out what doors they open and I no longer have the key. But the upshot is I look really important carrying this keychain around. Keys equal authority. Now, in Jesus' case, he doesn't have to have a lot of keys. He just has a couple of really important keys. 
the key to life and death, the key to Hades. He can unlock it and put someone in there. He can open it up and take them out. He has the keys of death because he overcame death. If Jesus holds the keys to death, then that places his instruction to John, hey, don't be afraid, that places it in a whole new perspective. What do you have to be afraid of? if the one who holds the keys to death and hell is on your side? What do you have to fear if the one who holds the keys to death and hell has his hand on your shoulder and says, I've got this? What could make you worry? So Jesus is telling John, John, I'm the one, I'm the Lord of the universe. Your friend that you walked with and ate with and lived with for three years I'm now the one that conquered death, arrayed in all of this glory, Lord of all of time, all of history, but also Lord of the universe today, the ruler of the kings of the universe. So what he says about the future, we can trust it. And then where he ends, chapter one, not only is Jesus all the Lord of history and the Lord of the universe, he is also the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of his people. Verses 19 to 20, he says, John, therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Which incidentally, that's a good outline of the book of Revelation. The things which he has seen, that's chapter one. Everything we've just gone through. The things which are, that's gonna be chapters two and three, as Jesus himself addresses the churches of Asia Minor. The churches of Asia Minor, which are representative churches of the age in which we're living. They're they're churches that have a lot of the same problems and concerns and sins and triumphs that we do. That's the things that are. And then chapters four, all the way to the end of the book, 22, are the things which are to take place after these things. So he says, John, I want you to write all this down. Coming from the one who's on the throne and the spirits before the throne and the one who has conquered death and holds the keys, I want you to write all this down. And then here's the big reveal. In verse 20, Jesus says, by the way, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven Churches. In other words, Jesus says right here at the end, he says, by the way, John, here's what I want you to understand as all of this is taking place, that I hold my people in my right hand. We're going to talk more about the angels of the churches next week and who or what they are. The lampstands are the churches. And remember, Jesus is walking amongst the churches both for disciplinary purposes, but also for protective purposes and for authority purposes. And he says, John, this message is being given to the churches. Christians like you and me, who say, I believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again. I believe I have eternal life, but I don't understand how we're gonna get from here to there. How are we gonna get from a place where the world is chaotic, where there is hostility toward God and his plan, where the governments rise and fall but almost invariably end up opposing God's kingdom? How are we gonna get from here to there where Jesus is reigning on his throne, where the kingdom of God has come and death and sin and rebellion to God and Satan are banished forever? How are we gonna get from here 
to there. Jesus says, I'm giving this message to you, John, so you can communicate to the churches, to my people. I've got a plan. The purpose of the book of Revelation, again, is to remind us that Jesus is on his throne. He's Lord of time and history. He's Lord of the universe. He's Lord of the church. And as we said, the purpose of the book of Revelation is not to scare us, but to give us hope. Not to freak us out about the details of the tribulation, but to give us comfort and peace in a dark world. When I was in junior high school, virtually every church youth group I was aware of showed a movie about Revelation and the end times. Here's a poster from it. It was called A Thief in the Night. If you are over 35 and grew up in church, you've probably seen it. If you haven't, the movie is scary. I was talking with uh, my brother yesterday, and he said, man, I just remember them showing us that movie, and, and it's like, you know, it's this dream that this, this girl has, and she dies, uh, and uh, she, uh, I'm trying to remember the story, but basically the rapture happens, and she gets left behind, and all these terrible things happen, and then the story ends, and, and, and of course, you know, you have uh, this old Larry Norman song come on, it's kind of, the sun has come, and you've been left behind, right, and that was it, and we're all like, that is terrifying, Right, and kids are crying and, and all of this, and, and uh, the youth, youth pastor's like, that's, that's what you need to know about Revelation, <laughs> right? And I, here's what I want to say. Okay, first of all, if you want to go watch the movie, that's fine. I don't recommend it, okay? And here's why, because the truth is, as you read the book of Revelation, it's not designed to freak you out. It's designed to lift you up so that you know the power of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's some crazy stuff coming in this book. I, I, I'll be honest, it's gonna, there are places it's gonna get dark, it's gonna get difficult, it's gonna get scary because darkness and sin and brokenness is the world we live in apart from Jesus. But you want hope, you go to the end of the book. Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, the one who conquered death and hell, he holds the keys. The risen Jesus is Lord of everyone, everywhere, forever. That's who John encounters. Jesus is on his throne. The Father who is, who was, and who is to come is always in control. The Spirit of God sees and knows what is happening, and he's present at all times in all places. Nothing's gonna happen that God can't handle. Nothing's gonna happen at the end that he can't handle. Nothing's gonna happen this week that he isn't aware of and can't handle. Will you place your trust and your faith on a day-by-day -day basis in Jesus Christ? Perhaps you are in the room and you don't yet know that you have a relationship with Jesus. You don't yet know that you have eternal life. The message of Revelation chapter one is anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ will one day know that they have eternal life and will rise again with Jesus. Because Jesus died for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. You can know that your future 
is secure. For those who know Jesus Christ, what I, what I want us to do uh, here in a moment as we close in prayer is simply to ponder, what are the things that concern me, that make me afraid about my world, about the future, about my health, about life and death, about the economy, about the government, about my kids, my spouse, my, what are the things that make me anxious? And as we pray and as we close, I want you to imagine like Jesus did with John. He's saying to you and me, hey, don't be afraid. Not only don't be afraid of the power of Jesus because that's deployed in service of his people, but don't be afraid of anything going on in your world. You don't have to be afraid because we know the one who holds the keys. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. What a powerful, powerful statement we've seen this morning of your eternal nature, your power over all of creation, the glory of the risen Savior, and the omnipresence and omniscience of the Spirit of God. We know that you are guiding and shaping history. We don't have to be afraid about the circumstances of our lives or even the circumstances of our world because we know we can trust you. I pray we would submit our fears and our concerns to you, placing them in the broader perspective of your power and your grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.